Hello and welcome to Mystery Bucket Podcast. I'm Doug. I'm Pete. And I'm Zach. Uh, this is a brand new podcast uh, devoted to mysterious things like stories uh, that are either obscure or deal with obscure subjects, as well as real life myths and legends. Um, Spooky, creepy things like cryptids and monsters and unknowable yeah. horrors from other dimensions. And that time whenever people have them ghost boxes out and trying to listen to the spirit. That too. A little staticky sounds. It's totally real. Um, yes. So we're going to be starting off with H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, he was a horror writer in the early 1900s. Uh, I think writing primarily between uh, 1910 and 1930. Um, he is considered a pioneer in a genre called uh, cosmic horror that tends to deal with spooky things coming from outside of our dimension or outside of uh, human comprehension in general. So would you, Pete, would you like to talk about what our first story will be? Yeah, so we're going to start off with Dagon. It's uh, one of the shorter stories that I've seen by uh, Lovecraft. I'm not overly familiar with his work, so that could be wrong, but... It's a uh, story that focuses on the uh, the journey of a prisoner of war who experiences uh, a horrifying uh, journey uh, through the sea after being captured by a uh, German sea raider. All right, yeah. So uh, this was one of... So H.P. Lovecraft did a lot of writing before... Uh, he wrote Dagon, um, but it was mostly kind of like lukewarm mystery stuff, um, nothing very remarkable. Uh, and then he wrote Dagon, and while it didn't garner a lot of Dagon, I, I don't Dagon. I would say Dagon, um, but it doesn't matter, honestly. Um, <laughs> it, did, it didn't. It didn't generate a lot of interest during his lifetime. But uh, to someone who is interested in cosmic horror, uh, Dagon would be a good place to start. Um, so the story starts off with the narrator of the story. Uh, he is not named, so we will refer to him as the narrator. It seems to be a common trend in the, uh, uh, at least the ones that I've read of Lovecraft stories, his protagonists don't have names. That seems to be a thing. Yeah. Because uh, it's not important. I guess we could always just call them in character Hewlett. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we well, could. <laughs> it'll be easier just call the narrator though. Just the, yeah. the protagonist, the narrator. We'll just go with the narrator, yeah. I think. Narrator. Okay. So the story starts with the narrator trying to reassure the reader that he's not a degenerate <laughs> or a weakling. On, despite yeah. his crippling opium addiction. Yeah. Um, and because he, he's like, I'm all like, I'm all fucked up in the head. I'm going to kill myself. Actually, the very first thing um, that he says is that he's uh, he's writing this account as a way to uh, um, essentially explain his circumstance uh, because he intends to uh, commit suicide uh, at the end of the at the end of the night after writing this account. And he's got yeah, to tell his side. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. Because he's going to throw himself out the window into the street, yeah. if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I looked. he, he uh, describes a, a garret window, 
that's the actual word that uh, H.P. Lovecraft uses. I looked it up. And it's the kind of window that's sort of uh, set inwards into the house, like on the top story, like an attic window. Hmm. Um, so that's just a little bit of trivia. That's what a garret window is. Interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, his story starts off with him talking about how he was a member. He was on a cargo ship. They got captured uh, early in World War One by a German sea raider. Um and he says that because it was early on in World War One that uh, the Germans uh, were treating uh, captured ships well. Um, if you know about World War One, uh, the Germans did initially treat. Uh, they would go about capturing ships in a quote unquote humane way compared to what they ended up doing, um, because they would use a U-boat. However, they ended up becoming way more aggressive with it because. Uh, the protocol was to basically surface uh, next to the ship you're going to attack and say, we're attacking you, and then capture them, basically. Um, but what ended up happening is that the British would put guns on their merchant ships, and so the Germans would surface in their U-boat, and then they would get shot at, and they would be forced to submerge again. Um, so basically, the Germans lost the the utility of a U-boat. Um, you know, It's not worth a whole lot if you have to surface before you do yeah. anything, you know. Eventually they were like, eh, it's enough. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is goes, that goes to say that the, uh, at the time that our protagonist, our narrator was captured, that they were very kind of loose with their captives. And so on the fifth day, he was able to uh, secret away into one of the uh, boats, a rowboat with a pack filled with provisions, water, food, uh, etc. And basically escape, uh, making his way uh, into the ocean, uh, which he very quickly decides to, that he's uh, uh, very lost uh, and admits that he is not a very good navigator. And uh, for several days, he drifts aimlessly, uh, hoping to find a shore, uh, some habitable land, or a passing ship that will take him, um, which is when he... Uh, one of the nights he ends up falling asleep and he awakens to find himself in a, uh, an interesting place. And Zach, would you perhaps like to read aloud from a selected portion? Yes. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words, the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing Nothing within sight, nothing in sight, save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the you may have to this word. I am not the one. Thank you. Homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. Yeah, that's something that's kind of funny about H.P. Lovecraft's writing. Is sometimes he just kind of pulls a huge word out of nowhere. It definitely trips me up a bunch, and I pretend to know English. One of the things about this that actually uh, uh, caught me as curious the first time is I had uh, sort of a misunderstanding as to what he meant by a uh, the uh, immense black slick of muck. At first, to me, it had felt like perhaps there was some kind of like oily, mucky slick on top of the ocean. But later on, it's it it very clearly clarifies that the. Uh, uh, what he's actually referring to is a uh, 
uh, a risen section of the seabed and the uh, black muck is essentially the detritus and the uh, nasty bits of uh, marine silt that have uh, kind of uh, made their way to the bottom of the ocean. Um, And obviously it's pretty disgusting when it's been uh, made its way to the surface and has been baking in the sun. So I also like describe some of it as being, um, it almost sounds like it goes on for like as far as you can see too. So either that is just so whacked out on dehydration and being sunbaked that he just can't see the edge of it. Yeah. And I also think it's kind of important. Uh, we forgot to mention that like he was drifting in sea in the boat and then it was like, he fell asleep and then he woke up and he saw all this around him. So it wasn't like his boat, like, casually drifted there he just like woke up and it was all around him um and uh yeah so as pete said the narrator uh kind of gives us theory that uh the landscape was thrown up from the ocean floor by some kind of volcanic activity uh and so now he's wandering through some place that was once deep mm-hmm. underwater uh he he waits a little bit uh a little uh while in order to uh let the uh, ground be dried out by the sun in order to become walkable. Uh, and at, at that point, he basically decides that he can't stay there uh, much longer and uh, sets out on a journey across this slick, seeing a, uh, what he call what he describes as a hummock, which I uh, take to mean a large raised portion of the uh, terrain. Obviously, if you're uh, stranded in the middle of a featureless plain, uh, if you can find at least some form of a uh, topographical uh, diversity or uh, something of interest, you would head towards that uh, in your in, in uh, search of something that would aid your survival. Yeah, I did actually look up the word hummock uh, oh, yeah. when I was reading it, and you are right. It's like a it's like a like a it's like a hill. Um, so it's like a, a little bump on the horizon, I guess, at first, and then he gets closer, and he's like, "Oh, a hummock." Um, yeah. So, uh, his, uh, journey is, it seems to take him a couple days. And during the, uh, the duration of his journey, he describes the, uh, maddening odor of the fish, considering that there is, uh, uh, many corpses of, uh, marine life on the, uh, the ground, the, uh, this upturned seabed that are, uh, and he also takes uh, care to describe the fact that there are no birds, considering how far out of the ocean he is. There are no seabirds to prey on the fish. And you can also assume, although he does not specifically say, that there are probably also no flies. So it's just a completely silent, you know, sunny, sun-baked plain of mucky uh, seabed with rotting fish that probably stinks to high hell, which he says as much. So uh, I, I found that... And, yeah, and it also no, kind of. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And it's also kind of interesting that those are they they can still be identified as fish, which means they probably haven't been there. Oh, and that he long. also mentions that there are some. Well, he doesn't say this at the moment, but later on he makes a reference back to it that there uh, there are creatures uh, among the fish that he does not recognize, and he he seems to be educated enough to at least uh, be able to you know, discern a, a fish that's probably known by modern science. And he seems to think that it's uh, completely unknown to the world. So. Yeah. I think he actually calls them nasty. I think that's the exact, like there's like dead fish and then other nasty things in there. 
which I think kind of funny. Just this, this uh, random white dude in the 1914, go, you know, gets straight on a massive, you know, black sludgy mire and goes, oh, look at that nasty that? thing. It's nasty. Uh, Less so, describable nasty things. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he says he says that the uh, unbroken um, monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, um, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down to the other side uh, into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared. So this is uh, later on in the uh, in his journey uh, during the night. He essentially decides that he has had enough of traveling during the day and then. Uh, after being awoken by nightmares, uh, wakes up in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the night, and the uh, bright light of the moon seems to uh, encourage him to continue on. So, yeah, I think he even says something along the lines of, uh, "I had been walking in the day, and then I decided I'm going to try walking at night." And he realizes, "Oh, it's way easier to walk around at night yeah, when he it's himself the hot for sun. not traveling during the night the yeah. whole time." Should have just, uh, man, the heat of the day is definitely not the best time to make me. a journey. Man, I should have waited for the evening. Daytime, oh open to the sun. Imagine the humidity. Oh, uh. yeah, it'd be bad. And like, like, and you were talking about like you can't hear anything, and like I was just like you, you probably wouldn't even be able to hear like ocean waves or anything totally from silent. where you. It's like just like. That, that was one of the yeah. uh, descriptions that I think uh, conjured the most uh, vivid uh, imaginings for me as I was reading the story. Yeah, it's always spooky when there's like no sound somewhere. Um, but as we were, wrong, uh, as he pr- proceeds, he makes his way to the top of the hummock, uh, which he later realizes actually uh, slopes downwards into a crater. Um, and at the moment of his first spying it, he, uh, he sees that it is, uh, it's not yet, uh, illuminated by the, uh, moon and it, to him looks as if a, uh, it says, uh, let's see here, uh, down on the other side of a measurable pinnacle canyon, black recesses, the moon at night. Uh, I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a, a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Uh, so, and then he, uh, makes a reference to, uh, <laughs> uh, paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. And of course, we all know Paradise Lost, one of the most famous pieces I'm of fan fiction I actually in don't the world. Know paradise Lost is. Please um, don't berate me. Oh, uh, no. Uh, it's oh, the expanded okay. universe for the Bible. Nice. Okay. <laughs> it's the expansion pack. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It's. It, it's the metal part. Don't worry. Yeah, I mean that's the Paradise Lost is about Lucifer and mm. uh, warring with God. That and sounds awesome. He gets banished with a bunch of yeah, and like okay. nine circles and stuff. All like the cool that. stuff about hell. Well, then the nine circles are from that was from Dante's Inferno. Uh, yeah, you're right. That's a different expanded part of the universe. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, there's the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, which is like a sequel. Um, then you have Paradise Lost, which is like expanded content, and then you got Dante's Inferno, which is like a political is commentary is slash expanded. Gazes into this uh, black pit, 
<laughs> in the middle of the night. This this very philosophical debate. So uh, um, the moon yeah. eventually rises higher into the sky, and he, uh, as it reaches its crest, it uh, illuminates the pit, and he uh, realizes then that the uh, ledges and the uh, sides of this pit are actually not as uh, sheer as he had expected them, and he decides that he is going to head down into the pit. And uh, Zach... What the hell does he find in this pit? Let's see what he does find. Let's try to cue you in for the, the giant obelisk. Yeah, and I completely lost where We're I reading was. reading along. I have, nope, I've lost my spot. Gigantic piece of stone. Try to, try to control F for that. <laughs> I think gigantic piece of stone is the right thing. <laughs> yeah. All at once, my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rode steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me. An object gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. It, that it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself. But it was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. Yeah, so he's, he's just this big old giant obelisk in the middle of this area. Whose massive bulk had known um, the worksmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Which is pretty whack, because oh this thing was at the bottom That's of the ocean. That's not possible. Yep. And How the I, I would like to say, though, that when this? I read that part, oh, no. I uh, had a sort of mental imagery conjured by my vivid imagination that was, uh, it, it sort of contrasted him standing uh, before the obelisk in the pit, uh, you know, obviously no longer under the ocean, and then uh, juxtaposed with the image of the dark seabed and the... Uh, you know, the, obviously the immense pressure of the bottom of the ocean, uh, the fish and the other creatures. Um, and I, I felt like that was, uh, that, that uh, the way that he managed to capture that imagery it, with those words, I think was uh, uh, compelling to me. Yeah, and he also mentions that he thinks it was worshipped, mm-hmm. like, before humans are even around. Um. And then, uh, hey, Zach, something shows up. What shows up? Eh. A big old. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before we get to that, I have one other thing I would like to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he uh, he takes his time okay. to actually uh, uh, observe the monolith and kind of uh, describe for us, the uh, reader of his account, the... Uh, the hieroglyphics that are uh, uh, present on the outside of it. And he says right here, uh, the writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me. And unlike anything I've ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols, such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Uh, And then he says, several characters obviously represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean risen plain. Uh, That's what I had mentioned earlier. Yeah. Oh, 
I didn't actually make that connection. Uh, and then he says, uh, it was a pictorial carving, however, that did most of uh, the most to hold me, uh, spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on, a, on account of their enormous size were an array of base reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a door. I'm not sure what a door is, aside from uh, a certain beast. But um, uh, <laughs> he says, I... Th- <laughs> I have a cat named Dor. Uh, He says, I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown uh, disporting like fishes in the water of some marine grotto or paying homage to the monolithic shrine. And then uh, I'm going to scale over a little bit more. Uh, He says they were damnably human in the general outline and despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy bulging eyes, and other featureless uh, features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seem to have been chiseled badly out of proportion <clears throat> proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but a little larger than himself. Um, and that part, I actually, uh, that one also really stuck out to me as well, because uh, it conjured to mind the images of, again, the uh, this uh, scene, this monolith in the middle of this uh, uh, trench uh, on this plain. Uh, at the bottom of the ocean, the darkness, the coldness, uh, sort of the unfriendliness to a creature such as ourselves. And it conjured to mind for me uh, swarms of the fishmen, you know, gathered around it, maybe perhaps using it as a waystone for their journeys or a site for their uh, religious um, pilgrimages. And then, uh, of course, the uh, creatures, these creatures, would create these images of the things that were part of their lives, the creatures of the underwater, or sorry, the creatures of the uh, deep ocean. And of course, uh, the one that he goes to great uh, detail to explain the creature uh, that was uh, nearly the size of a whale, which is truly a horrifying concept. If I would, if I were to uh, be greeted by such a creature, uh, a giant fish man capable of felling a whale on his own. And right around the time he like rationalizes it to himself that, oh, sh- no, nah, this is just an exaggeration. These are just like old gods or something that some pre-Neanderthals was worshipped or something. And then this happens. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemous-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its He's gigantic it. oh scaly God. arms. Sorry, you're about to say the, the while word. It bowed, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's hit. What? <laughs> the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. So right as he um. Right as he just got done rationalizing that, no, these ain't real. These are just made up of old people. One of them shows up. <laughs> and it goes up and it gives... See, initially, I had a, when I had first read this, hug. I thought that the creature go, was perhaps, uh, you know, more uh, like an octopus, like it had tentacles, or maybe it was more kind of like shapeless and had no bones or something like that. But I get the impression from this reading that it's a uh, probably one of the... Uh, Fishmen uh, depicted on the monolith with, because he, you know, obviously he says it's a scaly. It has a scaly uh, arms. So he says he also says that it is a, uh, like you said, gigantic scaly yeah. arms. So uh, probably a very large creature too. 
do you think that do do you think that he's uh this creature uh, probably is probably pretty buff uh, honestly like here to uh worship the monolith or is he grateful to see this uh cultural uh waystone or what do you guys think is he trapped here uh on the surface of the ocean because the land took him with it when it rose to the surface I'd honestly say it was probably searching for it or it was like tasked with searching for it because without the context of some, you know, just observer freaking out, it wasn't, it didn't exactly seem like it was, um, well, was not upset, upset that it was there. Yeah. And uh, that the, the creature itself wasn't upset that the obelisk was there. Like it, like it pretty much embraced the thing. Yeah, I assumed that the big boy came up here to worship the big old rock. I don't, I, you know, I think he was like, ah, monolith. oh, monolith. monolith, I worship thee. <laughs> oh, monolith. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's funny that <laughs> well, the narrator's goes. I mean, I think based I on what then. he describes of his uh, I journey think that was when it uh, happened. after that moment, he basically says that he... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just read it for y'all. Uh, of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have dis- indistinct recollections of a great storm sometime after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. So that's probably pretty terrible. Mm. And I know whenever I get kind of uncomfortable about stuff, like extremely uncomfortable, sometimes I will laugh. So it's not completely out of left field to be singing I mean, and laughing. People people while laugh nervously when obviously away. when they're nervous, but uh, yeah, the same thing. I think away. you think he was just doing that in a vain attempt to uh, raise his own spirits, or just out of delirium or fear. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it was more like singing. a like a coping deal. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, he was definitely singing "Star Spangled Banner" over and over again. Right. Because when this guy Thank wakes goodness. up next, he wakes up in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And Germany. that's in the America. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness he woke up and not. This is in, worse than what I said. Uh, insert no. Oh yeah, <laughs> That um. Hmm. Oh my god. He just ends up in a trench in World War One. Oh oof. no. Oof, the whole buddy. boat trip oof. The whole boat trip was a lie. Um even the normal parts. So yeah, he says that uh He doesn't specify the fisherman? nature of the ship. He just Some says American that the found captain him brought and then thither to by the captain of an American ship, which had picked up my boat in mid ocean. So they just find this guy, and this guy is fucking, he's like, ah, fish people, ah! And then they're like, don't worry he, about it. Uh, he's drank a little too much salt the end salt of the story water. at this point. Um, yeah. uh, I could give a brief uh, recounting of the uh, events up until the yeah. uh, final uh, moments of our uh, narrator, if y'all would be uh, okay with that. Uh, 
at the same yeah, time. And, right and for the for the very last <laughs> line, I do want all of us to read it uh, separately. Like, no, no, like, oh, like oh. I want all like of us to time? try to read that last oh, okay. sentence in as so, dramatic a fashion here. as we possibly can. Um, Go ahead and lead up, up to in it. In San Francisco hospital, he. Uh, apparently was muttering things when he was still not totally conscious. Uh, uh, once he attained consciousness, he tries to ask the rescuers or the people, the hospital staff about an up, a land upheaval in the Pacific, which they seem to know nothing of. Um, so he's, he, he just decides not to press it uh, because they would probably not believe him anyway. Um, he seeks out an ethnologist, uh, and amuses him with particular questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon. Uh, the ethnologist seems, as he says it, hopelessly conventional, and so he does not press his inquiries. Um, then we cut immediately back to the uh, the actual setting that the narrator finds himself in as he writes his final account. Um, he says that the moon is gibbous and waning, um, that he sees the creature, the horrifying creature, uh, in his thoughts and in his mind, and he has turned to morphine, as he's already mentioned, in order to uh, comfort himself and try to uh, push out these horrifying visions of the creature. Uh, I'll just read aloud for a little bit here. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons Mm. the remnants of puny, (laughs) war-exhausted mankind. I really like that that picture of uh well I don't like it. I think it I think it's descriptive of <laughs> of like because uh, I, th- I think this was came out in nineteen seventeen. Yeah, the first world war. Written, but yes. uh talking about yeah, humanity wow, as being exhausted by this war crazy war. It's the many world people know war. World war one. Holy shit, guys. <laughs> the Great War. Um so obviously from the, that when, perspective. It was before probably, they realized there would be you know, a sequel. Uh, it's probably uh, fashionable to conjure images of this war, uh, basically battering mankind into uh, submission and almost complete and total destruction. And uh, uh, drawing that connection between these, uh, this horrible race of fish-like beings coming up to finish them off, uh, uh, plunging their horrid claws and talons into their wounds and dragging them into the depths of the ocean to finish them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, we arrive uh, at I think the very last first. line in the story. Uh, who would like to go first? Get ready. Okay. This is a really good. Okay. This is a good one. So. Okay. Let me just. Uh, let me just. Okay. Okay. Let me just. Okay. Okay. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door. Oh no. As of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. <laughs> it shall not find me. Guard that hand! The window! The window! Okay, okay. The end is near. 
right. I hear a noise at the right, door, there, my, as of some okay, go ahead, immense Pete. slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand! The window! The window! Good. Alright. Zach, take it away. Alright. The end is near. I hear a, a, no- a noise at the door, as if some immense slippery body is lumbering against it. So, I have a question. Me. Is he, is God, he that saying hand. The, he's, the window? The he window. Would be, he would be saying this and not right. Like, he's uh, he's there and he's like, at the moment of his, like, um, the, the, the final I moments think before he that, commits suicide by defenestration, he. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, but um, he. he Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, you, I have, uh, I have, uh... It amazes, oh, it warms my heart that you know that word that. so well. I love you know that word. You know which one? Oh, and then the same guy who made that one made Heat, uh, heat Signature, which I is know a lovely game. Uh, anyway. I do. But he's, he's, like, about to die, and he's like, hold on, I have to write this down Speaking. for my, uh, the, the person, <laughs> that hand, mm-hmm. the window, the window. He's like, I'll say it twice. I'll write this down twice <laughs> for the benefit of whoever finds this. Mm-hmm. It's like that scene from Monty yeah, Python. Sometimes I wonder if it's, like, <laughs> supposed to, like, uh, blend what's going like, on in their head what they're actually writing it. down. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got to put that. You know, it did confuse me. For a while, I thought he meant that that hand. He he very clearly, he spoils it for you at the beginning of the story. He says, I'm going to kill myself. I throw myself out of this window. I can't stand it anymore. I'm out of money. I can't buy any more morphine to deal with this terrible stress. Yeah. So. Um. Here is my interpretation of that, of that, uh, in a way that does not break the fourth wall, um, would be that he has just gone insane. Um, mm, okay. and that presumably, it's uh, almost like he's, he's at, the last at, thing even he as the, on this piece the of paper, he might not have even thrown himself out the window. Like, I think that it can be assumed that he um, kills himself and you know, like, that this, uh, this testament that he's written is probably found moments after his suicide considering yeah. you know, people would see him find his body on the pavement, go up to his room uh, after seeing the open window. Um, so he's probably just in this case, muttering to himself uh, right before he commits the act, the ultimate act. Um, but overall, I really like this. Sorry, go ahead. I uh, know I, I, I was just muttering, <laughs> giving rise to certain measured like, sounds. Uh... No, go ahead. I'm, I'm talking over. <laughs> I'm sorry for interrupting you during that well, part, but that's my yeah. favorite line from the entire story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. We kept on laughing just, about it's, the it's multi-purpose, you know. Uh, it is. It's a good line. Yeah, I mean that's what yeah, we're doing. Like we're, we're making actually, noises. That I didn't realize this until Pete mentioned it. I think or chanting like, or swinging certain measured sounds. That just means it's talking. Yeah, or some intent. Yeah, <laughs> um, but like when He's I heard like certain Morse code. sounds, I just um, I just imagined like <laughs> the the, the monolith only speaks in Morse code, boop, boop. like just something like that. Yeah. 
It's got a red flashing light on top. It's just turned around. You can't see it. I hope you all have enjoyed this uh, reading of Dagon. So uh, It's been yeah, fun. That's it for episode one. Um, I'm Pete. Uh, Quite th- fun. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug. And I'm Zach. See ya!